Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are here in Wade's office. We are getting our own studio. The college loves us so much that they're giving us our own studio. We actually just have a room up here, an office that isn't being used. Um, they're working on the heat right now, and but eventually we're going to have our own little room so we don't have to take down our stuff and set it back up again, and I think it'll be it'll be really nice. And we, we thank the maintenance guys. Apparently this is much more of a uh, process than we thought it would be. How would you describe the heat in my office, Mike? Uh, you should have them come over here because it is hard to regulate uh, temperature in Wade's office, and it's not just because of his hot air. Um, we are here uh, in his office to do another winging it session on the life thought times of Martin Luther. Um, we've kind of gotten a little bit away from the actual history stuff. We had to pause a little bit and take some big picture stuff. So last time, for instance, uh, Peter and Wade kind of took a look at what's Wittenberg? What, what would it be like to walk down uh, the main street in Wittenberg? Uh, at the time of Martin Luther. And today we're going to talk about a little bit of the University of Wittenberg, but really Lutheranism being a Reformation that started and was kind of tied to the university. It's a university Reformation. And what does that mean for us who are Lutherans today? And I would say, what does that mean for the whole Christian church? Um, what is Lutheranism's role within the greater Lutheran church? And is it tied? Should it be tied? Can it be tied uh, still to that university and uh, the university beginnings that the Reformation had in the 16th century? So um, with that said, I'll kick it to you, Wade, and you can kind of introduce it any way you want. All right, I don't want to have too much crossover with the previous session, but it might be helpful to kind of restate a little bit as we start. If you haven't listened to the earlier ones, uh, you're not going to be lost as we continue on here, but I encourage you to go back and check some out. And uh, just kind of a, a brief overview of Wittenberg. Again, um, Wittenberg is a city that kind of is going to not start from scratch. It had been around um, become a project for uh, the elector, the prince, Frederick the Wise, when uh, Saxony is divided between the Albertine and the Ernestine side, um, and he is the Ernestine side. And this is going to become kind of his city. He's going to shape it. And so it's a city of scaffolding. He's working on a bridge over the, the Alba. Um, the one they had had a, a long time before had kind of flowed away, <clears throat> which is always a bad thing. Um, he's working on the All Saints Foundation, which is connected with the uh, All Saints, the Castle Church. Um, he has a growing collection of relics there. He in inherited some that were already there, and he uh, himself, having taken a trip to the Holy Land, had brought back a number. Uh, he's going to be working on uh, establishing the university, which we'll be talking about today, but also his own castle, fortress, palace, whatever you want to call it, he's going to have built there too. So Wittenberg is very much a city of scaffolding. Uh, but one thing that Frederick wanted in his territory that he did not have when Saxony was divided, <clears throat> um, Duke George ends up having, um, his father had been Albrecht, but Duke George ends up having the University of Leipzig, um, which we'll get to the Leipzig debate. And Frederick wants a university. This is very important to him. And so his city, the city of Wittenberg, was going to be a university town. And Staupitz, who we've also talked about, I believe that was session nine, um, was going to be very important in the founding of this university. The university is founded in 1502, and that's when it gets its imperial approval. 
um, I believe from uh, Maximilian at that point, who technically was king. There's some interesting dynamics going on with the estates, um, kind of the the, the German um, princes and governmental things, and Maximilian uh, the king. Uh, but um, it'll get imperial approval in 1502 and then papal approval the next year. We shouldn't read into that. That wasn't any antipathy towards Rome on Frederick's part. It uh, wasn't, you know, way unusual for that to happen. And when he asks for approval, he gets it. So the university is kind of up and running around 1502-1503 as uh, having all the approval it should have. And Frederick is busy trying to gather a quality faculty. It's not just who can we get that's around, but he wants to build a quality faculty. Uh, Staupitz will begin as a professor of theology, but as you know from the Staupitz episode, he's a busy man, and eventually Luther will be recommended for that. Luther is doing his doctorate in Wittenberg. Um, He becomes doctor of theology in 1512. He's transferred to the Augustinian house at Wittenberg in 1511. He'll begin lecturing in 1503. So really within the first decade of the founding of the university, Luther will be very busy. Um, The university will have uh, initial success. Um, Student enrollment's pretty good for what they anticipated. A lot of the enrollment would have been uh, people in religious orders, but you also you have children of nobility and others who were enrolling. Uh, the faculty is going to be a mix of traditional, via antiqua, you think Thomas Aquinas, um, and via moderna, um, think Occam, nominalism we've talked about. Um, a lot of the people who will come over to Luther's reform, like Amsdorf, um, Karlstadt, others were grounded in the traditional way of doing theology and philosophy. Um, Amsdorf, especially, which, you know, when you see where Amsdorf ends up, makes it especially kind of impressive, the, the move that he makes. But this means that uh, Wittenberg becomes a town of that, that is gathering talented citizens, talented professors, but also people who see opportunity there. You have a princely town that is also a university town, that is also looking to be um, increasingly an important ecclesiastical town with the All Saints Foundation um, <clears throat> and the relics that that contains. And so you have men like Lucas Cronick who will become mayor and printer and drug dealer, the pharmacist in town. And I think, Mike, you already agreed that we can do an episode on Cronick eventually, <clears throat> but we're going to put that off a bit. Um, Melanchthon will later be called. You have an Amsdorf or a Karlstadt already there. Karlstadt will you know, end up um, diverging from Luther theologically, but definitely a a capable and known scholar of his time. And so the university is really coming into being. It is uh, the campus, to use a term we would use now, isn't what it eventually would be. They're using the buildings available um, for uh, the purposes uh, of education as best they can. But it, it provides a unique opportunity for Luther that he kind of gets in mostly on the front end, and we'll see fairly early on as the curriculum is developed and then redeveloped, he'll have an opportunity really to shape that. And then just to reiterate one more point from our last episode, because uh, kind of of the provincialism of Wittenberg, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, it's a new town, it's emerging, and because the university is newer, um, Luther has a lot more influence and leeway than he would have if he had walked in to say um, an established university. 
with established departments that kind of had entrenched ways of doing things. Um, he, he's able to um, wield influence, uh, wield maybe isn't the best word, influence in a way that he might not have been able to do elsewhere, as will Melanchthon and others when they come. So you have very talented people coming in who also then are going to have a lot of opportunity to really shape things early on, too. Yeah, there's a lot of intrigue going on there. I mean, you have, uh, you know, the elector is trying to attract people and talent and uh, eventually, of course, money uh, to to his new town here. And so he can go the religious side with the relics. He can go the university side with uh, uh, his, his the college that he's setting up there. Um, and he knows that that's going to then attract talent. It's going to attract business, too. I mean, um, and printing's a whole different, whole different topic. Maybe even a whole different uh, episode sometime. But I think probably yeah. The just I mean, with the Brand Luther book, there's so much out there now on that. I think it deserves a, a session. You know, I mean, just the fact that books are going to have to be printed for these kids to to buy, these students to buy, and so and and it's kind of intriguing. Sometimes they would use the printers in 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 Wittenberg and, and sometimes go elsewhere. And there's a whole lot of intrigue going on there. But there's literally going to be an economy. I mean, it, it, America is full of college towns that if the college left, it would very much be like a factory leaving. Um, and then the talent thing's important because, you know, uh, we don't know everything about Frederick and all of his, his motivations, but um, he needs to back Luther later on because this is his star professor. And even today, but I think much more back then, especially the new kid on the block, the University of Wittenberg. This is not Paris. This is not, this is not, um, it's not even Oxford or, yeah, it's not even Leipzig. It's not not even Erfurt, you know, and uh, students are going to be attracted to the professors. And so, and in Europe still today, that's much more the case than that is here in America too. You, you really go to study with a professor more than you go to study at a, you know, and not having sports at the universities in the same way we do. You know, um, your college or university is marketed very different there still today, but especially back then, you went to study with certain people. Yeah, you're, I mean, if you just if if you t- told the average person or asked the average person, you know, who's the great big professors at Harvard and Yale, they're not going to know. And most people that come here, for instance, probably come to have us for theology to take <laughs> to take Mike and Wayne. Yeah. Um, Maybe by the halfway through the semester, they're actually going to know our names. I just ran into a student. I'm like, oh, who you got this semester? And she rattled off about half, and she said, um, I forget the other names. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you're, we we in America uh, market outside of sports. You market for the programs. Um, you market for the seal, the place, the degree, uh, the diploma, and not necessarily the, amenities the person. Even. Yeah, not necessarily the person. And so Luther— and then later Melanchthon, those are big, big deals. It's a bit, it's a bigger deal that they got Melanchthon, right? And knowing uh, that he was a prodigy and that he was being um, courted by other universities. It's, and that will a be a deal. session in its own. Uh, Melanchthon deserves a couple sessions. Absolutely. Probably. And so, you know, we, what we should remember, Mike, is when um, when Scott Keith is here. Um, that, yeah. In May, we should really try to bust out a session or two with him on Melanchthon. He'd go. be really good on that. Um. So. Luther being there very early on in the university, I mean, he actually teaches his first class on uh, Aristotle's ethics, 1508, I want to say, and then later comes back uh, and then becomes uh, the doctor, um, uh, gets his doctorate there and is going to teach in the 
teach biblical language, not languages, but biblical uh, courses at, at the university. And so he is there very early on and clearly uh, a person that influences what's going to happen. Um, if he goes to Paris, that's been around for hundreds, hundreds of years, um, he's got to play politics within his department and politics within uh, the college and the university. Um, you, you wonder if he would have been stifled, that there was definitely, uh, we would say, the hand of God that he, he went to. He, he went to Wittenberg and didn't, and didn't stick out an effort, you know? Uh, I um, mean, things die. Anybody who's worked in a workplace that has bureaucracy, things die really easy in, in bureaucracy. And if he would have been entrenched somewhere with a more established bureaucracy, we all, those of us in academia know you have department meetings, school meetings, things like this can really drag things out a whole lot longer. Um, then Luther was able to just kind of fire something off and send it to the printer. Yeah, and he could do his own thing, and he could get away with it, for, for lack of a better way of saying it. I'm really intrigued about the idea that this small town, that uh, you're right, it, it attracts talent. Talent attracts talent, right? We see that in all over places. We see that in companies, uh, tech companies right now. You see that in the NBA right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, <clears throat> And so Chronic, um, Dewar to a lesser extent, uh, Melanchthon are going to be attracted and, and the more talent there is, the more important it is, and the more, the more students you're going to attract, um, the more attention you're going to attract, um, higher quality people, and it's a passionate place. And um, when you have that hard work and passion being played out in such a small town, uh, it really is a special place. And so when you think about just going through the biographies of Luther and you say, this was, a, you know, Lang was a, uh, uh, new Luther as a child, you know, in, in their childhood. Um, and then Bugenhagen and then Amsdorf and then Melanchthon and Durer and Chronic. These are people that are worthy of their own biographies. And there are biographies written on them. Of course, these are people that deserve their own history. It individually, um, the amount of talent that is attracted to this small town really is remarkable. And part of it is, you know, it just happened to be the circumstances, but it's also, I think, we, when talent comes together and there is that passionate um, intellectual back and forth, it pulls out of people some things that maybe would not have been pulled out of them. And so there are different parts of history um, you can think of the American Revolution maybe as one of them, where there it's just the right time and talented people take it to the next level. And I think you really see that in Wittenberg, just such a small town. And all of these famous people have these connections to him. And, and the center, of course, being Luther. But at the same time, Luther's not Luther without Chronic, and Luther's not Luther without Melanchthon and, and Bugenhagen and, and everything. And yeah, I mean, there's just Kruziger, so... Yeah. Uh, it, it really was uh, not an individual type uh, reformation, and I think that leads us into our main topic, is that Lutheranism being a university type uh, reformation, and, and maybe I'll, I'll give some uh, a few of my original thoughts, and not original thoughts, but my first thoughts, and then, and then kick it back to you, Wade. One is... Luther has to think this through because A, he has to teach it. Um, B, he's forced into um, debates and disputations um, of the time where he is forced to concisely put down his thoughts into what we would call theses. theses. 
and has to put them has to have them peer reviewed in in the 16th century way and this is an academic exercise this reformation it was not one just of feelings it was not just one of culture it was not just one of style it was not one that was hey we got this new idea that's going to throw off i don't know whoever the, the tyrannical leader culturally or politically is there and so it's kind of a more of a mob mentality thing no this was an intellectual kind of reformation it certainly touches all of life it certainly becomes something for the peasants absolutely um, not just in their faith, uh, you know, sola gratia, sola fide, sola scriptura, but also in vocation. But it started, and it was robust because it was in the university. Yeah, and I think here, you know, you think of a Petri dish or, or something where you're putting all these things together and they're going to bounce off of each other. They're going to uh, contaminate each other in a good way. You think of what we think of things, well, Luther taught this, Luther thought this. Many of these things are products of or honed in connection to his colleagues. Um, Luther translating the Bible, the Old Testament, is certainly a collaborative effort, and Luther's Greek is going to owe a lot to Melanchthon. We think of the, the, um, the language that will develop in Lutheranism, but even with Luther, of justification, um, some of the atonement ideas. These are going to appear, especially some of the justification stuff, earlier in Melanchthon, than in Luther, um, Melanchthon's 1521 Lotzi, which is just great, and you wish you would have stopped tinkering with it then. Um, you see stuff there that will become more prominent later in Luther. But Melanchthon's also picking up on Luther and systematizing that. Um, Justice Jonas, for instance, will be very important for translating, I think it's Jonas, not Kruseger, um, who's going to translate Luther's stuff into from German to Latin or from Latin to German. And so he's able to do so in a, a really skilled way that many people will encounter Luther through the lens of his, his translator. Um, even Karlstadt, who will later diverge theolo theologically from Luther, is going to be asking questions, probing, and it's in reaction to Karlstadt going further on some stuff that, that Luther's theology will develop and be shaped. Um, it's almost impossible to imagine Luther <coughs> outside of this cross-fertilization, and as you said, um, he's having to test ideas, and in in there, you know, the, the disputations and these method of of theses to be discussed and debated really become important. Uh, you know, you'd have these debates, and students would have to take sides and debate, and then professors would kind of weigh in. and And Luther was very good at at writing these disputations. Um, help Luther kind of toss out things he's wrestling with, and then he can kind of build on them from there. Uh, the faculty also will be very important, though, too, for supporting Luther. Um, you know, at times when Frederick might have wondered, should I keep protecting him, he has colleagues who are coming out and saying, yes, you know, Martin's not saying anything heretical. These are things that are in the scriptures. Um, he should be defended. And and that support, that collegial <laughs> support, becomes very important both for kind of um, stealing Luther to these challenges so that he he doesn't give in when at times he might have been tempted to, um, but also gaining him support abroad. Um, and and so that, that takes us to something that we can maybe develop a little bit also, which is uh, education thus becomes very important in Lutheranism. We can probably unpack the, the front part of education in another session because Luther will become very important 
and Melanchthon and others. Um, you know, Melanchthon is called the Procaptor Germani of Germany um, for the establishment of kind of what will become a public school system, but a religious public school system. But for universities themselves, 1517, Luther has his disputation against scholastic theology, which is basically getting at how should we be doing theology in the schools, because scholasticism was the theology of the schools. Um, Melanchthon will come and basically give his introductory address that will address a lot of things that today we would call curricular, right, having to do with curriculum. Uh, and so um, this early Lutheranism really is a product of university theology. And this is, we see this, this what happens with the Renaissance or humanism. It begins in, in the south of Europe, especially in Italy, and it's largely patronage. It's oftentimes individual scholars who, who artists, you know, writers, who find patrons, and oftentimes the patron is the church or the local nobility, and they're going to produce these important works, or they're going to write things that become very important, or they're going to make original sources available, primary sources that weren't available before. But in the north, as humanism goes north, it becomes, uh, there is, you know, the, the, the Flemish painters, and they become very influential, and, and they have their own artistic style, and, and Chronic Endure and others will be influenced by that as well. Um, we were just talking about that in History 112 today, and, you know, basically it becomes uh, the art, northern humanism, the art becomes more religious than it was in the south and less nudes is basically mm -hmm. the, um, you know, the well, big it's colder. It's colder in the north. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is famously why Michelangelo quits uh, working for the pope for a while as the pope wanted him to cover up some of the, the nudity, and Michelangelo walks out says, forget it. Um but it becomes especially literary humanism and um, scholarly humanism and, and connected to the universities. Erasmus is teaching in universities. And, uh, and so you have early universities. Marburg is founded as a Reformation university. Um, Jena later will become very important. Um, and Wittenberg and Jena will kind, kind of compete with the editions of Luther's works that will come out, each emphasizing different writings of Luther, um, especially as the debates that arose, what they felt were pertinent to those. Um, but maybe, Mike, if, if you have a little bit on what maybe that can be a healthy reminder for us today um, and what this means for how Lutherans historically, where our theology, how it developed, and, and how we've dealt with theology uh, over the centuries. Sure. Maybe before I get to that, just a couple thoughts that I had about, you know, just being in a university situation, a, a university setting, um, you know, what if Luther was just a pastor in maybe even a big town, you know, like uh, Munich or whatever, Nuremberg, um, you know, he, he, he doesn't have probably access to printing as, as easily. He doesn't have, I can bounce ideas off of other people. There's something to be said about being around youth. I mean, you and I will be younger just because we're around youth. There's a, there's some passion and excitement for learning. Uh, you don't get into your, um, maybe you don't get into the ruts if you were just a, a parish pastor in, in some place. And so there there are, the setting really can't. Well, and the access to manuscripts access to and manuscripts, books, yeah. T time to do these things. Um, and I know, we all know, we know this just from ed educational um uh, pedagogy that you know when you are forced to teach something you look at that differently 
and you know it a little bit better. And so uh, you're just kind of forced into that. And then the disputations against scholasticism, um, you fifteen seventeen. You got Heidelberg fifteen eighteen, and then you know his own thesis that he had uh, the ninety five theses in, in fifteen uh, fifteen seventeen as well. Uh, it you're forced into thinking clearly and putting yourself out there. Um, and you're a, he was a doctor of the church, and it's important for us to understand that too. Um, a doctor of the church wasn't your expectation wasn't simply that you taught in one church, or even that you were just there for that university. And Frederick never intended the university to be um, just, this is to serve a nesting Saxony. This is a university that he wanted to be influential and contributing to the broader church, um, to the broader society and culture as a whole. So Luther saw it as his obligation, as every doctor of theology would at this time, to be a teacher of the church. And regularly they would say, okay, uh, what what does Erfurt think about this? What does Paris think about this? Uh, as a faculty, what do they think about these writings or these uh, disputations or these theses? And so there was definitely a back and forth, and, and Wittenberg was on the map with that, uh, largely, of course, because of Martin Luther. So now as and we— lo- Mike, not to interrupt, but to interrupt, I guess— this is also in Lutheran history. Sometimes maybe you've wondered, uh, in our own synod, we used to have Dr. Martin Luther College. Um, but there's a lot of things that will be named not just Martin Luther, but Dr. Martin Luther. And people might wonder, why do we put that doctor in there? You know, imagine if this were called Dr. Martin Luther, Wisconsin Lutheran College, whatever, and you go, well, most of the people there are doctors. It is, that was a way of saying Martin Luther was called to be a teacher of the church. Um, that doctor means more than, you know, a medical doctor, or even you and I now, um, we would not presume to teach mm-hmm. um, the Southern Baptist Convention. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was an authority with which these these people were uh, endowed. Yeah, when you, I mean, maybe you can go so far to say when you say when you see Doctor Melanchthon or whatever, um, that shorthand for Doctor of the Church. Yeah, and, and Doctor and, means teacher. Yeah, and Luther is going to going to use that right if you if you get. Law, if you can rightly distinguish between law and gospel, you are a doctor of the church, right? Um, you know what's going on here, and you can teach others. Um, so fast forward, I think there's a couple things as we look at Lutheranism today. Um, one is two caveats, and then and then maybe more a couple positive things. One is there was this idea, I think, in my grandparents' generation, maybe my parents' generation, too, where Luther was seen as more of a simple guy who got got all the cobwebs out of the church, and then here is just the simple, we're going to get back to the uh, uh, apostolic teaching when it was really simple, a simpler time, and I even heard some guy say, uh, Luther saved us from Latin. <laughs> you know, like, clearly haven't really thought about who Martin Luther actually is. Uh, this is pretty sophisticated stuff going on here, and if anything... Uh, Catholic doctrine was, was, was the more simple form. Um, here is, you know, Trent do, is going to try to play catch up with Protestantism yeah. with this kind of university trained pastorate. Like, just in the simple doctrine of, okay, do your best, do what is in you, do what you can. Here is the grace as a, um, you know, a substance that you get, and and hopefully you have more more of this grace and good works and merits than you do. I mean, not to say that that was not complicated because it could get lost in scholasticism, get lost in a whole lot of things, but um, 
Luther dealing with the theology of the cross, with uh, the problem of the will, uh, dealing with all some really sophisticated things. And as we said, I don't think that happens outside of a university setting. So one is for us not to think that Lutheranism is just, oh, shucks, kind of um, uh, denomination. That's not our history. Um, another thing to think about is, um, well, you said it's not just the university, it's education in general, that Luther is very much concerned about the education of all people, and, and not because he was a bleeding-heart liberal, although I think he appreciated and respected all people. We see that in his doctrine of vocation uh, uh, through and through. But he understood that in order for this to be maintained, this Reformation, although I don't know if he thought about it in those terms, but for this to be, for, for the gospel to continue to be preached, you needed to have a well-trained pastorate. You needed to have a literate laity. I mean, his concern was that the gospel be proclaimed and maintained. And um, if if people are illiterate, if the, uh, the, the ministers can't, you know, function on a higher academic level, that's when superstition is going to take hold. That's when false doctrine cannot be fought. And so he wanted everybody to be educated, and I think primarily for the preservation of the gospel. Uh, the other thing about Lutheranism still today being tied in and around um, uh, the university and academia and education, catechesis, all that kind of stuff. Well, let's put it this way. I, I think Lutherans are very jealous of the evangelical world because they start big mega churches and, and they're on fire for Jesus. And we can learn something from the evangelical brethren that, uh, you know, they, they seem to care about souls maybe a little bit more than we do and um, are willing to put themselves out there. And at the same time, Lutheranism has uh, a middling uh, position with maybe perhaps Roman Catholicism on one side and maybe more of the um, evangelical Protestants on the other side. Kind of American evangelicals. Yeah, American evangelicals. And um, uh, we'll put it this way. We don't go around quoting Calvin very much or quoting some of the great um, Catholic theologians, and there have been plenty. Um, and part of it is because we don't need to, because not only do we have Luther, we have Melanchthon, and then we have a whole generation of Orthodox Lutherans after that um, who, who really mind every possible question that we can think of. And, uh, and the other, but the other side of it is evangelicals quote Martin Luther and Roman Catholics quote Martin Luther. And there is an anchor, there's a sense of an anchor that the Lutheran Church serves not only just in the Western world, but then in the other parts of the world where Christianity is now becoming, um, well, the center of Christianity is perhaps moving to the global south and also to Asia, that when we think about our mission work going out into the world, yes, congregations, yes, knocking on doors, yes, setting up places in that have never heard the gospel, of course, of course, of course, but we should not forget that strong universities, strong academic theology is really important for the future of Christianity as well. 
Uh, we can do some crazy things as Christians. We can convince ourselves of some weird doctrines, all of us, and, and the threat is always there. But to have a good historical concept of theology, to have good biblical language studies, to have um, all of the things that we talk about on the university and academic theology, those are, those are powerful things, and they're not sexy necessarily. Um, but going forward, maybe the greatest thing Lutherans could do is set up universities. <laughs> in, or support in those that they have set and, up. And yeah, absolutely. And you know what? The Baptists are going to do it better than us when it comes to knocking on doors. Uh, you know, they are. They just are. And God bless them. And people are being saved. Um, and we should do that too. However, not at the expense of the academy. And I think in history, we learn a lot about, uh, we, we learn uh, a lot of lessons. And not only that, but, you know, just thinking about the different waves of people who came over to America um, from Europe, um, that many of them did not want to start religious schools, but wanted a public school for varying reasons. One is that there would be a Christian stamp on that, that public sphere. Uh, some were just not that concerned with uh, academic theology. Um, but Catholics and Germans and, and Catholics, uh, German Catholics uh, and um, the Irish, German Polish, Lutherans, yeah. all of this. Uh, part of it is cultural. Part of it is you know, keeping your own culture and your own language. But I, I think the Lutherans put a, um, at least the second wave of Lutherans, they put a high price on education. They thought this was a priority. It was a high priority to set up schools from kindergarten all the way up into the university level. And and we still reap the benefits of that. And I think we should do that as we go forward uh, into other places in the world. Yeah, just a few things. I'll piggyback off that, Mike, and then we should wrap it up. I would say with the schools, you know, I think it is you look at the Concordias and you look at um, the colleges that our own Senate and the Wisconsin Senate has had, most of them originally started as worker training schools for pastors and teachers. Um, the Concordias, like us, are largely now liberal art, professional school type type colleges. And I know sometimes, you know, our own institution occupies a weird place because, you know, we're a parasynodical school. We're not synodical. Uh, but we're affiliated with the Wisconsin Senate, and I would say very proudly so and very um, um, loudly so. And uh, but sometimes people say, "Well, what do we need a what do we need a not worker trainer college for?" And I always point to people, "Well, should we have Lutheran elementary schools?" And people say, "Of course." Should we have area Lutheran high schools? Uh, well, of course. And it, it, it's kind of odd sometimes that we're that some might be willing to say, "Okay, now we're gonna now that they've gotten probably the the weightiest and most um, crucial part of their education, well, now we're gonna hand them over to Madison or to you you know you pick it." Um, and that's nothing against Madison at all, but um, the importance of sending people out, lay people out, who are able to be educated and able to answer and able to speak and and able to raise children and able to serve as church leaders, um, I think is very important. A few things with that, I'm just going to go down my bullet points then. Sometimes in the parish I'd have uh, members who would get, get concerned maybe we would lose someone because they got enamored with some doctrine from some other church. And a lot of times those people would end up coming back, but I would, I would sometimes tell my elders and councils, like, don't worry, We're, Lutheranism is kind of like the grad school of American Christianity. A lot of American Christianity has um, abandoned real 
being seriously doctrinal. Now, you'll still see this among the Reformed, and you could probably say of like true Calvinist Reformed people, they're kind of a grad school for Christianity too. But, you know, where we want to have the meat, we think that's important. And so it tends to be if you're going to join a Wisconsin Synod or Missouri Synod or Evangelical Lutheran Synod Church, you're going to go through an instruction process that is a lot more than you would elsewhere. And people will tire of, you know, milk is great at first, but to be a place that has solid food, and to be a place that has solid food, we have to have solid education, and that's something that Luther recognized as well. I mean, the doctrine of justification was was not something that was easy to grasp for someone who was mired in medieval theology, but these were things he thought were important and had to be inculcated, the doctrine of vocation, things like this. Um, and so the importance of educated pastors, too, uh, I know here we're extremely supportive of Martin Luther College and our seminary um, and the important work they do to send out pastors who can address a world that's better educated than it has historically been. Now, we could all get to, is high school what it used to be or the university? Um, there's challenges there. But I think for continuing ed for pastors, too, this is something the seminary has promoted with Grow and Grace, to recognize um, the pastor's no longer the most educated person in town necessarily, and to continue that, it always kind of makes me happy when we get people who will email our message and ask us for book recommendations after they've listened to something. And we're both spoiled. Mike, you're starting to get to where you've built most of your classes, and now you can just revise them. And I've been there now for a little bit. That we're expected to be reading, uh, to staying up on stuff, and uh, and to have pastors who are doing the same. Uh, that is an important part of our service to our congregation. For pastors to have a bookshelf where when a member comes, they can say, you should read this, or if they don't own the book, to be able to point them to a resource or to something. Uh, this is this is vitally important in our day and age, and this comes out of the university background of Lutheranism. Um, and so, you know, I always got a little nervous when you'd have someone who comes out and you could tell their bookshelf never evolved after seminary. <clears throat> um and that's kind of where their studying stopped. And, you know, we live in a world that, that things are changing rapidly, and there's all kinds of questions. Um, we owe it to our people to be up on it, to, to, to answer those as, as, as best we can. And so I think this is something to remember about the origins. Um, you know, Zwingli's Reformation largely was a parish pastor and a city council. Um, you know, a lot of the, the places where reform took, they didn't take where there were universities. Um, even in England, the universities became important, but it was definitely a governmental reformation. Uh, it was spurred that way. This comes out of, um, the ref our reformation largely comes out of theology professors doing theology, but not just doing theology in an academic way, but doing it for the people, right? The true skill of Luther as a university professor is that he could teach and write in a way that those things reached the lay people. His writings were accessible to the lay people, and the people he taught in his classes, he wanted to teach in a way that they could go out and be accessible preachers and teachers to congregations as well. And so, you know, it, it, I always really appreciate the scholars, um, and I'm not—this isn't just a church thing even, but scholars who can—like historians who can write a popular history, that is much harder than writing something full of technical jargon for an academic journal. And, uh, and that's where university and church life can be very intimately connected— and Luther saw them that way. Keep in mind, Luther's also um, very involved at the uh, the city church, at St. Mary's. Um, Bugenhagen, who is the parish pastor, will also be teaching at the university. 
And so this this marriage, this relationship, I think is a, an important part of our heritage, and one that I, I hope we we do cherish. Yeah, and just one maybe couple uh, thoughts to to close it. Uh, the liberal arts, just in general, um, you know, uh, this is part and parcel of of, of Lutheranism, and uh, not afraid, not afraid of challenges either, right? Um, <clears throat> so when somebody comes to you, if you're a pastor, someone comes to you and says, I heard this or whatever, um, you don't have to freak out. You can say, we're, we're not, we don't fall apart when there's a challenge. We don't far, fall apart when there is uh, somebody who comes and says, we found out something new. Um, you're trained enough. You've seen enough. You've seen enough of the uh, controversies of the past. You've read these through. You've struggled through them that you say, hold on. I mean, I have the answer right away but I know where to find it. And not only that, but things come and go. And um, and they have lay people who are able to do that in their vocations when people have questions about Christianity, who are able to give thoughtful answers and not just, well, God is good all the time. All the time God is good. You got something more, more there. And I think especially in our world right now where it is an open marketplace for ideas, that you uh, you better come with something good because even if you have the truth, but your truth is just kind of is um, explained and articulated in a very um, simplistic way. I don't mean simple, but simplistic way. You're not going to get a hearing. You're just not going to get a hearing anymore. Um, you got to have some quality to back it up. And so, I, I, and I, maybe one last thought too is when it comes to philosophy. Um, Lutherans, you know, get themselves in trouble, of course, with philosophy, as everybody does. But they knew it, and they didn't turn away from it. They didn't go the simplistic route and say, all philosophy and reason is bad, and therefore we should never go to a university, and therefore we should never even pick up a book. Right now, if you wanted to make an impact on this world, um, it's on the university and specifically in the philosophy departments. And philosophy is maybe a little ahead of the game and leaving behind some of that what we call uh, modernism. And uh, there is a lot of openings in the university for Christians to do their thing. And Lutherans, we have the history, but we seem to be a little bit um, ashamed of that history sometimes. And so uh, we should teach philosophy. We should have philosophy professors. We should be thinking about these things because that, that's going to be where uh, future culture is going to be um, at least in part shaped, and we should be a part of the game. It's part of our history, and I think it can be a part of our future as well. So with that, Wade, I think we should close it up. And uh, This was a little bit different than some of the sessions. We did definitely bring stuff more to our day, but we intentionally wanted to do that. I think it's important to understand um, tying our roots to uh, to our current challenges. And next time, I think we're going to talk about Luther, um, the young professor, and the classes that he taught, and getting into that university life. And eventually, we're going to have to get to fifteen seventeen, and um, where most people think that the Reformation began. But uh, that probably won't be until uh, episode. I don't know, 12, 13, or 14. So yeah. uh, we hope that you understand that there's a lot going on there before we get um, to that fateful day uh, in 1517 of October, in October of 1517. So uh, we welcome you back for our next episode. Until then, let the bird fly.
every evening when the sun goes down Get my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a jank I set them up another round I set them up another round 